Welcome to our new MotoGP podcast for the race. Toby Moody manning the mic here with Neil Spaulding today. MotoGP technical guru and the man who knows which way a crankshaft spins in a MotoGP engine, even while the motorbike is being warmed up on the stands. Neil, how are you? All right, thank you very much. Yes, yes, uh, thoroughly enjoying life. Uh, recently back from some MotoGP testing and really, really looking forward to what I think is going to be an incredible year. It certainly looks to be that way. Reporter for the race, Simon Patterson, is already out in Qatar, where indeed he has been for the last 10 days now, after the MotoGP race has been cancelled. Simon, Thailand, that second race of the 2020 championship has been cancelled as well. So here and now, the season opener is at the Circuit of the Americas in Texas on April the 5th. Will things change between now and then? Nobody knows, but let's hope that we get the green light then. That's exactly it. We we have a long time until then to see what happens, but fingers crossed everything works out and we finally get some bikes on track in the first weekend in April. So moving on to what we're going to concentrate on today, let's talk about the riders, let's talk about the bikes, let's talk about the factories up and down pit lane in MotoGP for 2020. Where do I start? But asking who can stop Mark Marquez and Honda. He's 27 years old. He won a 125 championship, a Moto2 championship. He's won the MotoGP championship now six times. Since the start of 2012, he's won every championship he has competed in, less for one. Yep, the one that Jorge stole, as it were. Yeah, he's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, there is no two ways about it. Mark Marquez, has, he has changed the way people race. He has understood how to take the vehicle further and how to get more out of it. And it's taken a lot of people a long time to start working out what they've got to do to try and stay with him. Uh, On the other side of the coin, he's riding a Honda. It's an incredibly extreme motorcycle. It only works when somebody like Mark Marquez is on it and absolutely taking it to its limit, plucking that Stradivarius string. It is a phenomenal piece of kit when it is used to that 100th percentile. Anything less than that, it's an absolute disaster. And you can see that in the finishing positions of the Hondas. You know, where is the second Honda? This is a motorcycle that delivers, but only when you have a rider of Mark Marquez's quality on it. But Simon, Mark Marquez has signed until the end of 2024... For HRC, I mean, I can't get my head around that, but they can. They've probably done a 100 million euro deal, arguably. The big question is, short term, how is his shoulder after the winter surgery? Well, Mark's been having some problems with the shoulder. We know that. It sounds like when they did the operation to restructure the the ball joint in it, that they somehow managed to trap a nerve, which has been causing them all sorts of aches and pains and problems over testing. But of course, if there's one person who's probably maybe not happy about the delayed start to the season, but at least relieved by it, it is Mark. It gives him an extra month now potentially to heal up, to recover, to continue working on that shoulder. And it's exactly what his rivals didn't need. You know, people smelt blood in the water at the start of the year when he was riding injured. The odds of him riding injured whenever the season finally starts now are so much less. Question is, we know he's a cat. You know, whichever way you throw him, he always lands on his feet, you know, and he he does these crashes that aren't really crashes and he gets away with it. Even with a weak shoulder, he might not be able to do that question. 
Yeah, that's it. He admitted during testing that he wasn't able to make those sort of usual Mark Marquez superhero saves, that he wasn't able to ride around the problems on the bike the way that he usually does because the solder was limiting him. But the biggest issue they were facing, I think, at the test was technical. So now that that is, in theory, addressed, it means that he can go right back to where he was 12 months ago with a slightly easier to ride Honda. And we know that he started off the season there just as competitive as always. Where were they at in pit lane, Neil, uh, with testing at, at Qatar and Sepang? Well, basically, they, they, they came to the start of testing with a couple of different engines. That's been decided. Um, they refused point blank to tell me when the deadline was for deciding the engine specification. Obviously, it's a matter of competitive advantage. The later you decide, the more testing you've done to choose what specification engine you're going to go forward with. But I'm pretty sure they had to decide in the middle of Sepang. And on chassis, they've been trying an awful lot of things. They have a new chassis that they brought um, at the, uh, the last test last year, Valencia. That uses a lot more metal around the headstock, um, presumably to try and make the feeling a bit more stiff so that the rider gets a bit more feedback. That hasn't, I have to say, been noticeably successful. The riders aren't happy with what they feel. But in addition, they've had an experimental chassis, which they have been literally machining metal off in the evenings. So if you look at all the different chassis, you'll suddenly spot one with some silver tape on it, and the side beam is, is physically changing in different outings. So they have quite literally been whittling away at the, at the size of this side beam, looking for the right amount of flex, i.e., when you're leaned fully over on a motorcycle, you need the chassis to bend to get the, the tyres to go over the bumps and actually keep grip. If it doesn't flex at all, you slide. If it flexes too much, you slide. You've got to find that perfect position right in the middle that suits the tyres. Now, Cal Crutchlow was testing this special chassis, and Marquez was going on it, out on it as well. I understand from listening to Simon on the Dorner output that Honda have actually gone slightly further and what they've done is get that chassis modified again with some carbon fibre strips. And what that does is change the rigidity again. If you look at the side beam of a chassis and imagine it as a softback book, if you bend a softback book, it bends over the whole length of the book. But if you put a stiff binder on it, if you put a bulldog clip on the back of a softback book and you bend it, the bend moves towards the stiffer section. If that's a chassis, you, by doing this little bit of extra carbon along the top, you'd end up with the wheels moving further when it's leaned over. And what they're trying to find is the softness that grips leaned over while keeping the rigidity under braking and the transfer between the two feelings as far as the rider is concerned. It's massively sophisticated stuff. And completely empirical. This is not the stuff you can do on a jig. Since the the birth of the Motorcycle Grand Prix World Championship in the late 40s, and here we are in 2020 now, and it's still the ultimate black art. And it can still, Simon, upset the riders. You know, you, you were in those debriefs with Cal Crutchlow. He was at the wrong end of the timing sheets for, for, his, for, for, his, for his mind. Yeah, Cal was very unhappy with the direction that the bike had went in. Um, Mark 
being slightly more corporate as Mark is, was uh, saying similar things, but not quite in as vocal a way as we all know Cal is capable of doing whenever he's not happy with things. Um, they just weren't finding it. They just weren't finding the mid-corner turning. They weren't finding the corner entry. They kind of lost everything that the Honda was good at, even while it was battling various issues elsewhere. Um, however, on the final day of testing, Mark had one of his 11th hour miracles where he claims to find everything, solved everything, and it seems like that change came from reverting back from the 2020 Aero, which was quite big and Ducati-esque, to last year's 2019 Aero, which was much smaller, much more delicate wings. What they have admitted that means now, though, is that all of the work that Neil's just been talking about in terms of chassis development, they kind of have to start over again on because the bike is reacting so differently with the new wings old wings yeah and you know i've no doubt the wings are making some of that difference but i've got to bring in the old bugbear at this point which is the tires are also changing things what michelin have done i mean let's just reflect a little bit on michelin's position for a second they went away from racing when bridgestone became the control tire eight years later they walked back into the paddock as the tire the only tire you can use they initially had to prepare tyres that would work immediately, be safe, accurate, and competitive for everybody. That's not easy. You've had eight-year holiday. As they found out with poor Loris Baz in Sepang. Yeah. And, and out of Loris Baz, because that was a tyre that delaminated, we also had another small problem in Argentina where a tyre went away under Scott Redding. As a result of that, they changed the design of the tyres. So all the tyres since then have had this very hard centre section. And it's meant the teams haven't had the braking effect that they've expected. The tyre literally slides on the, on, on the tarmac because Michelin built it really strong. They weren't going to have tyres going pop. Now, after four years, or the fourth year, Michelin have finally turned up with a rear tyre that is significantly better than the Bridgestones we had before. Now, where this tyre is better is in full leaned-over grip, edge grip. It does two things better. It plain grips better, but also it has the longevity to go to the end of the race. And those are both things that were causing the inline fours, Yamaha and Suzuki, absolute nightmares for the last three years. Now they've got a tyre that you could argue is designed for them. There is, however, one little problem, which is the front tyre. Now we've got all this grip from the rear, it's overpowering the front. And Michelin have said we're not getting a new front tyre to match the rear until next year. So the game is on to get the best out of the rear without overpowering the front. And that's part of Honda's problem. Honda's racing line, they call it the Honda line is almost straight into the apex of a corner in a straight line, front end nailed on the ground, turn really tight, and then blast it out. And at the middle of that V, there's a massive spike load on the tyre. You've suddenly asked it to do all the grip of a corner right now. Simon, have all the riders been saying they're having front end problems? What's the kind of take from the pit lane? Exactly what Neil says. Uh, the inline fours seem to be loving it and the V4s seem to be struggling a little bit with it. And I think it, it entirely comes down to the way you approach the corner. You know, The inline four with the higher corner speed just loves it. They can turn faster. They can make up some of the deficit they're losing from the likes of Honda and Ducati on braking. And they're, they're getting the most out of it. Um, 
that slowly changed over the course of six tests. You could hear the, the V4 guys starting to change their opinion of it, starting to come round to it. But both Honda and Ducati you know, were potentially going into the first round of the championship and Qatar nowhere near as strong as they were hoping to have been because of it. While then you go down the street and talk to Yamaha and Suzuki's guys and they're talking about, you know, even one Mir was chatting about a race win potentially in Qatar. No, I mean, it is, it is quite a phenomenal upgrade. Um, it, it's also quite nice, though, to, to, to actually give the inline four guys the credit for their choice of design. They've taken a lot of flack over the last few years, basically on the lines of it's not a V4, it should be a V4. No, the V4 suited the tyres. And what happens in a control tyre series is the tyre designs the bike. What we finally got is a tyre that's working in line with the way their bikes were designed. And I think by the time the V4 guys have stopped messing around and we get that front tyre, there may be a year's gap here, they'll be happy as well. So for this year, it's a straight line year. Let's throw that to the floor. And as we saw on the face of Maverick Vinales, Simon. Maverick was like a new man all the way through winter testing. Uh, compare him to 12 months ago, and he was, you know, finishing fa- first in tests, having put in one flying lap, but then wasn't happy afterwards, was still complaining, was still upset. This year, happy to go out, concentrate on his race pace, finish 18th in the overall times and be absolutely delighted at the end of the day because he knows he's got something there for the race. That runs all the way across the the field because all of the Yamaha guys, Fabio Quadraro, Valentino Rossi to a slightly lesser extent, Frankie Morbidelli and the two Suzuki guys are all feeling the exact same things. I mean, I think it's worth having a quick chat through what else Yamaha have done because you've had massive changes there. In the last two years, uh, they've changed personnel. They've come up with a new budget. I mean, in a way, I feel really sorry for the guys that left Yamaha. They turned up with an inline four that worked just fine, thank you very much, on the Bridgestones and on the very, very first Michelins. But as the Michelins went through there, we're learning how to do this process. Yamaha got left behind. And the bike didn't change. Now, I don't know whether the project leader didn't want to change it, whether they were terrified of moving away from something they knew worked if only the tyres would be fixed, or if they just were paralysed by, by indecision. We now have new people, new project leader, new head of Yamaha Racing, uh, Takahiro Sumi, who's basically the top chassis guy in Yamaha, has taken over as project leader uh, of the MotoGP group. Alongside him, he's got a bloke called Kasahiso Takano. Now, Takano-san was the guy that's designed the Nikon, the three-wheel bike. Real specialist in really, really unusual stuff. But he also designed Rossi's early chassis, and he's come back. And between the two of them, they've made the Yamaha, they've upgraded the Yamaha. It's not a new bike. Um, where Yamaha have been trying to go for the last few years is to become more like a Honda because the Honda was clearly working on the tyres. What these guys have said is, no, we're just going to be Yamaha and be more of Yamaha. The bike will go through corners better. It will turn faster. It's got a slightly more stronger engine. It's being reinforced in a few other places. It's another 10% on where it was before, and somebody's had to come up with a pretty big budget to let that happen. And Simon... Although Vinales has signed till the end of 2022, the big question mark that the world of sport wants to know 
is, of course, what Valentino is going to do. And for me, at least, I think he doesn't know yet himself. Nail on the head. Uh, he doesn't know what's going to happen yet. He has said repeatedly that he wants to see how competitive he is whenever the season starts. I think that hasn't changed. Um, I think he needs to get a bit of a feeling for how competitive, not just for how competitive the Yamaha can be, but for how competitive he's going to be on the Yamaha. Um, It wasn't the most reassuring thing if you're a Valentino fan to hear some of the things he was saying at the end of the final night of testing because he is still struggling with some of the issues he had last year, especially with making the tyres last to the end of the race. Um, a few people have suggested maybe that's you know inherently a riding style thing. It's something that he needs to fix within himself rather than that Yamaha still need to fix within the bike. He is obviously making efforts to do that, and he's brought in a new crew chief this year from his own Moto2 team, uh, the guy that won the championship with Peko Bagnaia in Moto2, David Munoz. So let's see how that goes. Um, Bottom line, it's going to take a few rounds, maybe even take as long as the summer break in July before we know whether or not we're still going to have a Valentino Rossi in the championship next year. I did say the other day to uh, a friend of mine, I said, what he needs to do, he needs to win Mugello, stand on the podium and say, do you know what, guys, that's it. I'm going to stop at the end of the year. Or even better for him, of course, win at Mizano. You know, the fairy tale would be complete since his debut in the championship in March 1996 at Shah Alam. But he's got to find out if that bike's quick, Neil. He's got to find out if that bike is quick for him. This is where, I mean, I desperately, desperately want Valentino to enjoy himself, to realise that at the age he is at, it is coming to an end, and to manage himself out in a delicate and responsible manner so that we remember him as a great champion, not as the bloke struggling at the back, trying to make up for the fact that he's now, you know, getting old. He's 41 in the middle of February, so yeah. And his riding is stunning for a 41-year-old. The other problem, of course, that we have is that while he might not be getting that buzz on two wheels, he is getting it on four wheels. I think the worst thing that happened to MotoGP was Valentino going to Abu Dhabi for the eight-hour endurance race in December last year and finishing on the podium. Absolutely. And he needs something that lights a fire that doesn't require him to be 30. You know, it's, it, that, that point comes. I mean, what I've seen in quite a few riders over the years is as they get older, they're constantly searching for the feeling they got from the bike that they got when they were at their peak. Stoner, testing. Uh, all of them. I mean, the, the best one, to be honest, was um, young Roberts on the Suzuki. They knew that they had a potential world champion, but he was only going to try in, you know, in his later years if, if the bike felt right. And it never did. He's searching for something that simply isn't there anymore. It's a drug. Adrenaline is a massive drug, and it's a buzz, and it's a kick, and, you know, people skydive, they bungee jump, they ride a motor GP bike. This is a thing that is 155 kilos. It's got 280 at the rear wheel, and it lifts the front at six inches over the, off the ground over the crest at Mugello. They're sat on an engine, for crying out loud. It's got more power than a, a Golf GTI, and it's 155 kilos. It's got more power than Golf R. Golf R. <laughs> I'll rest my case. And it's got a quarter of the, of the drive, you know, so... You know, you know that, that's where I sort of sympathised a little bit with, with Jorge Lorenzo. He had a terrible last year. We know why. 
that, that press conference that he made in Valencia, the one line that really galvanized it for me was, I was rolling through the gravel with my accident at Assen, and I'd hardly come to a halt, and I asked myself, what am I doing? You know, it, we, we can all hit our thumb with a hammer whilst doing a DIY. These are guys that are jumping out of a car down a motorway at 150 miles an hour and tumbling down the road. Um, none of them are slow. None of them are slow. They're just less fast towards the rear of the grid. But I look at Lorenzo, and he's doing a bit of testing, as, you, as we saw uh, at Qatar and uh, the other day. Uh, sorry, at Sepang the other day. Um, he's getting his buzz. He's getting his buzz, and he had a smile on his face, Simon. Yeah, and the worry for a few people who fancy a Yamaha satellite seat in 2021 is that testing might not be enough of a buzz for Jorge Lorenzo. Um, every- Every time I've spoken to him, he said that the percentage chance of him coming back next year has gone down. Um, there's going to get to a point where Patronus are going to come with, to him with a decent offer, and um, who knows what's going to happen. Well, let's be, let's be honest. If, if they end up with Rossi and, 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 and Lorenzo in the satellite team... <laughs> things you thought would never happen i mean that picture that we saw with lorenzo you know giving valentino advice in the garage after one of the tests things you thought would you would never see you had to, you had to see his face and his body language in the test team garage at sepang there was a 19 year old in there going absolutely ape. I want to be out there now. Fix this. Get it. I just need to get another couple of laps in. When the flag went down, there was one person on track, still on track, going as fast as possible, and that was Jorge Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, you know, he's a three-time MotoGP world champion. You know, they don't give race wins away, let alone world championships, and he's still got the fight. Which leads us on to the Patronus Yamaha squad. Uh, Quattararo, seven podiums last year. He's on a full factory bike for 2020. We have all been willing him on to win a Grand Prix, but he's got that pesky Marquez in front of him. How can he do it? My God, he tried last year, and it was, what, last lap in Thailand amongst some of my memories. He's so young, but he's... Yeah, no, I've got the speed. Neil, you go first. I absolutely think he's got the ability... He showed at certainly places like Masano last year that he could just get in there and fight and fight and fight. He's now got a tyre that will still be working at the end of the race and is better, and a motorcycle that makes more power and is better. I, it is, to me, it's absolutely just a question of when. And I have to say, if we hadn't had this initial delay, I'd have had my money on him for the first race. And the other thing that he has now that he didn't have last year is a full year of experience. He knows what it's like to dice with Mark Marquez on the last lap of a race. He knows what Mark's going to do a little bit more. He's in a really, really strong position to take that experience into the year. And yeah, I agree completely with you, Neil. Um, I think he would have had a really, really strong performance at Sepang or at Qatar last year in his first time out if he had installed the bike in the grid in his first ever MotoGP start. And he was absolutely one of the favourites to to win the race again this year. Wow. He's still 20 years old. I mean, you just can't get your head around it. But as much as watching Lorenzo in the garage was like watching a 19-year-old, here we've got a real one. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to see the sheer... I mean, where, where was this lad 18 months ago? He was sitting in a Moto2 team going nowhere. Bless him. He's only won one Grand Prix. And 
he wasn't going anywhere. It had gone wrong. And then Yamaha said, just come and try. And he suddenly found himself in a place with the support that gave him what he needed and a bike that worked with his style. He can't believe it. You watch it on his face when he walks through the garage. He fist pumps every mechanic. It is a celebration of life, of, life, of joy, of everything. It's fantastic. But there's a good atmosphere in that team, Simon. Yeah, there is. Um, obviously, I spent the last six months working with him. I've been in there and done that. Fabio has something special about him. He brings something to the garage. You know, uh, when I was working for the team, I there was only a really thin dividing wall between my office and his changing room at the start of the race. Uh, before every session goes out, he's blasting out Frank's, French gangster rap and having a karaoke session. You know, there is just a real joy of life with him. He's found a team where they have a very similar attitude. It's quite a small team feeling, despite being quite a large team, they nurture him, they look out for him. He has fun together with them. The guys go out mountain biking, they go for a few beers after a good day out. It's exactly the team that a 20-year-old rookie needed last year, and it it's just works for him. It's exactly Jorge Lorenzo when he went into the Fiat Yamaha team in 2008. First three races, pole positions. He won his third Grand Prix with the fastest lap that time. It's, it's a history all over again. Yeah, but it's more than that. It's just like Valentino Rossi when he went into 500. I mean, Valentino's got the same mechanics. You have got a unit here that's working. You break it up at your absolute risk. You know, don't... don't don't fix it. It ain't broken. We're obviously trying to look forward into 2020, but we mustn't forget that Andrea Davizioso finished seconds in the MotoGP World Championship last year. I know Mark ran away with things. He won by 151 points. That's essentially six clear Grand Prix worth of points, similar to Stoner back in, in 07. Um, but Ducati and Dovi, they've got the fight. They've proved that with that second place. They proved it with both riders winning Grand Prix last year. The most emotional, fantastic victory I've ever seen with Petrucci at Mugello. That'll never happen again. I hope it does, but I don't think it'll happen again to that magnitude. Have Ducati got the fight? Simon, you go first. (sighs) Difficult question. Um, The will to win is there. There's no doubt in that. The bike is potentially there because you listen to some of the rivals and the Ducati is the best bike in the grid. But I just don't know, with the best will in the world, if they've got riders that are up to the challenge. Um, We know that Petrucci is good in his day, but for the majority of last season, he was very, very hit or miss. Um, The Mugello win was incredible, but then he kind of fell apart after that. It was like he'd got what he wanted and lost interest a little bit. He'd reached his Everest. That's exactly it. And Dovey... Dovi, we know on his day again, can be really, really fast. And he has his days more than Petrucci does. We've seen that. Um, But he just doesn't quite have it to take it to Mark Marquez at every circuit. Ducati still haven't quite got rid of that problem that they've been having for three years, where a bad day for Mark Marquez is second, but a bad day for Andrea Vizioso can be eighth. I think I absolutely agree with you on the riders. Um, Petrucci's entire plan for the rest of his life came true at Mugello. Yeah, he did everything he wanted to do in I'll one hit, I'll way too it. early. I mean, win Mugello, I'd take it. Um, Dovi, Dovi is that rider that went straight to nine and a half tenths and doesn't quite know how to do the last half a tenth. 
Whereas what they need is a Mark Marquez or a Quartararo that started at 11 tenths and is crashing his way down to 10.1 tenths, for want of a word to put it. You know what I mean? It's just that last little bit. Dovi can win a race. He can fight like crazy. I just don't sense that killer instinct, that last little bit in him that makes a champion or a multiple world champion. The bit that says, I'm going to win anyway. The bike is superb. The bike is superb. I think whenever we look back in 10 years' time at this period in Grand Prix, we'll decide that the single biggest mistake ever made was Ducati's decision to get rid of Jorge Lorenzo. I totally agree. T- totally bizarre. They spent the money. Spend a bit more. I mean, I think it was a two or three mil, whatever came into it. You know, yeah. they'd offered him a couple. He went to Honda for four. And, and, and it's probably Jorge's biggest mistake as yeah. well. Yeah. As, as a pair of them, you know, because it was there. Now, we do have one more chance at seeing that mix work because, of course, Ducati have signed Zarco. Now, Zarco rode Jorge's old Yamaha to absolute perfection for two years. His riding style and Jorge's riding style are incredibly close. He's now been signed by Ducati, albeit in their third-level team, but he's got the bike that Jorge developed. So we're now about to find out whether Zarco can actually ride as hard as Jorge. And I have a funny feeling by halfway through the season we'll be seeing a lot of Zarco at the front. Bologna have got to recognise this, though. He, uh, arguably, arguably, he's their second-best rider. You're right, but Bologna have got to recognise this. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, but remember really, that they had Valentino for two years. Oh, no. But it's a different, I know that was, a, that was ten years ago. But it's a very, very different Bologna now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's a different Bologna post-Lorenzo. I don't know where the orders came from to give him a, a, an offer that wasn't very much. But I am hoping that whoever that was has had their fingers burnt and they realise it. Um, certainly the decision to hire Zarco... Because, I mean, let's be honest, Johan isn't, doesn't come across as an easy hire or an easy person to get on with. But somebody saw in him the same characteristics that they had in Jorge. He's a world champion. It's more than that. It's, it's the ability to ride that style of motorcycle. But that 19 bike now has the tyres that could make it great and a rider that is attuned to what it has to do to make it great. It is not impossible that Jorge's 2019 Ducati will be as fast or faster than the 2020 bikes. Zarco had his, his, his moments of public anger. He got caught on camera at Jerez. The border KTM said, stop, it's over. He's humble now? He's more humble, let's put it that way. Um, he's learned from the lessons of the last year, the last 18 months. Um, he's hopefully taken it on board. I think, honestly, the best thing that could have happened to him was being sent to Aventia, slamming them in the media and saying that they were a third-rate team that he'd never go to, and then seeing Ducati put a pump, pumping a load of resources into it and actually making it quite a good team this year. <laughs> I think that he's maybe learned a lesson from that, that you know, if he doesn't shoot his mouth off, mouth off there's uh, things might actually go his way and people might actually try and help him out. The team that they've got there this year is pretty radically different from last year um, in terms of the amount of red shirts in the garage as opposed to blue shirts straight from Bologna. The, obviously the level of equipment, but even just the level of the bikes, getting up close and looking at them. Um, former World Superbike rider Ruben Zeus is in charge there now and Ruben really has tried to up the game in terms of professionalism. 
And I think Zarko will feed off that a little bit. I think when he's given the respect he thinks he deserves, he'll return it. Well, I think one of the things that he's got immediately is a very, very good crew chief. Basically, the lad, and forgive me, I've forgotten his name, who went from Ducati to Suzuki with Andrea Iannone, ended up being a technical director in Suzuki last year. This year, he's taken the job of looking after Zarco in that third team. That's a bloke that knows Ducati's absolutely backwards and is perfectly capable. I mean, how can I put this delicately? He's just had a couple of years training on how to deal with slightly difficult riders. (laughs) So he's perfect. Ducati are good at experimenting. They're not afraid of putting the front foot forwards. Uh, I've been reminded of late uh, coming in here today about their block gear changer that they had in 2001, sorry, two or three with Carlos Checa. So it would come into a corner in sixth, and then it would dis- disengage the clutch, yes. and then it would just go into second gear before the first corner at Jerez, and there was, there was this silent bike would whoosh past you before it then engaged again. And it was all a bit weird, and it was all a bit odd, and it never really took off. But what they're playing with at the moment is this ride height adjuster, call it what you will. This is going to be very difficult to explain on a podcast, not a visual one, but an audio one. It's all yours, Neil. Take it away. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let's start from stage one. Motors, most, most motorcyclists and most non-motorcyclists know that if you go accelerate too fast on a motorcycle, the front wheel comes up. And it would be quite nice if it didn't, because if it keeps coming up, you've got a massive problem. We have several stages in using a bike on a racetrack where that's a massive issue. Off the start line being the most obvious one, but also out of most of the slow corners. And increasingly at top speed we are now we have got so much power now ever since we had um the new control ecus three years ago where we also got two liters of fuel and another two engines per year for the factory teams suddenly we got 30 horsepower and everybody's realized that they couldn't use it they got so much power the bike's going to turn over backwards so the first thing we got was wings and that worked quite nicely that held the front down Um, But it didn't really solve the problem. Then people started working out if they used the rear brake a lot, they could hold the middle of the bike down. If if you've got a rear brake that's attached to the swing arm and you use it, the, the effect is to try and push the swing arm pivot straight downwards. So what we're seeing is riders burning up a whole load of friction with the rear brake all the way through the race, holding the bike down on the rear brake. The Ducati and the Honda riders use the rear brake for up to 70, that's 7-0% of the lap. Not always full on, not always half on, just modulating it to keep the bike feeling settled. Ducati are watching all this and thinking, well, we can do better than this. And they decided that they go back to an old motocross trick. So they found a way to lower their bike on the start line. Now, if you lower a motorcycle... It doesn't wheelie as, e- as easily. The reasons are actually slightly more complex than just flipping over backwards. If you, draw, if you imagine the bike sideways on and you draw a line from where the rear tyre hits the ground and you draw it up at 45 degrees, on most bikes, most GP bikes, will go through the centre of gravity, the combined centre of gravity of the rider and the bike. If that line is 45 degrees from the rear tyre, through that combined centre of gravity, you can accelerate at one gravity, one G. If you manage to drop that centre of gravity 
so that that line's 42.5 degrees, you can accelerate at 1.1 g before the bike starts to turn up. So where, can I interrupt, where is the centre of gravity on a motorcycle, give or take? Yeah, how can I put this? Somewhere towards the top of the rider's thighs when he's sitting on the motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> right in front of the rider. Yes. Yes, okay, so, so it's at the back of the fuel tank, just the fuel on tank, the seat. That sort of area, Just yeah. as the fuel tank comes down to join the seat. And if you could, and if you could just drop that, just 10, 15 mil... It's not that you stop the front wheel coming up. It's you accelerate a lot faster before it comes up. So you watch bikes that have got this mechanism. It's quite startling watching them go. Because you are talking about potentially 10% faster acceleration with just an inch down. So take it further. What happens if we did this? You know, Ducati have done this now for 18 months. They've had a mechanism on the bike where they screw the, 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 a lever down on the top of the forks. And through hydraulics, it shortens the little rod in the suspension. So the shock absorber still works perfectly normally, but the bike just sits that 10, 15 mil lower. But now, they're obviously doing it while the bike's going around on the track. And if you look very carefully at the handlebars, a couple of extra buttons have sprung up on the left handlebar. And if you look very, very carefully inside the front cowling, you can see a whole lot of hydraulic links and pipes and what looks to me like the top of a Olin's shock absorber. So what I think they are doing is that what, where before they were physically, hydraulically turning down a little switch on the top of the forks, which you can't do in the middle of the race, now they have a button that fires a, a, a compressed air shot or a hydraulic pressure out of this modified shock absorber body into the unit they've got down the suspension to lower it and a second button that brings it back up again. I don't know if you can recharge that pressure in the race. It's entirely possible you can only use it ten times or something like that. No different from the compressed air that operates the valves. Yes. You have to charge it before it leaves the garage. You do, and it lasts about an hour before you start worrying about whether you need to do it again. So question, how long does this charge last? B, can it be repumped in? But much, much more importantly... Does the rider have enough space in his head to deal with this as an extra issue? You are already going absolutely flat out. You are already in the front two or three of a Grand Prix. And somebody's saying, press this button. I mean, let's get this right. Coming out of a corner, you want the bike high. You want, for the first two gears, you do not want the bike to lower itself. But by the third and the fourth, you do. So when you select fourth, also press this button on the handlebar while hanging on to it, knocking the bloke out of the way that's by the side of you. And it's raining. And it's raining. This is not easy stuff. Then you get to the end of the straight, and theoretically, if you lower the bike, you can brake harder. But you can only brake harder if you've already had a high bike that squashed the front tyre. So you want the bike quite high up, you hit the brakes, all the weight rushes onto the front wheel, flattens the front tyre, but now you've got the front tyre flat, you actually want the weight as low as possible to, to stop it. Question, if I pull that lever, does the bike come down or does the rear wheel come up? You know, th- this is an incredible amount of complexity. There were some quick starts at the tests. Yeah, very much so. Simon, did they, what were they doing up at Qatar? Because there's quite a few at the, towards the end, weren't they? Yeah, by the end of Qatar, I think all four 2020 bikes, so Davizio, Zupatrucci, uh, Miller and Bagnaia were all playing with it. They were all using it not just on starts, but all the way around the lap. There's some photographs of 
you know, comparison pictures of Jack's bike in the same place as Maverick's bike and the rear looks like the suspension has collapsed, basically. Jack did his usual after the three days of testing and said, look, if I tell you anything about it, Ducati will have me shot by morning, but I'm still going to tell you everything about it. And... (laughs) Is that the journalist trick that you do when you just stand there holding the, the, the dictaphone and everybody goes quiet and the rider feels compelled to actually say something? It works every time. Yeah, the, the good thing is, though, with Jack Miller, you don't really need to worry about it because he doesn't have much of an internal filter anyway. Um, Jack admitted that, you know, like we saw with the original whole shot device that Neil described, he's been using it since the end of last year and no one has noticed. So they've got a bit of time already spent developing it. And Jack also, talking to Jack and then talking to Peko straight afterwards was quite interesting because Peko said exactly what Neil has just been saying, that it is a real, real, real like brain stress to try and remember to use it, to try and get it to work properly. But Jack, who's actually used it in a couple of races now, says that it's almost coming naturally to him. It's just another button to push. He did admit that whenever he first used it, um, the first time he ever used it was in Thailand, and he managed to stall the bike in the grid because suddenly there was two extra buttons on the handlebar, and he tried to activate the whole shot device instead of activating the start mechanism. And there's a lot going on. I mean, I, as I said a moment ago, none of them are, are slow. I don't know how they do it, but uh, they're the best in the world. They are, but uh, now forgive me for this one. But if you know your wacky races, you'll know your dick dastardly. <laughs> and every time I look at Gigi, <laughs> I can see dick dastardly. He sees <laughs> an idea, he goes for it. I mean, let's be honest. Th- this actual piece of kit is not new. I have the patent here for a ride height adjuster filed by. A, uh, Claudio Domenicali and Filippo Preziosi back in 2002. This is an idea that sat in Ducati for nearly 20 years. But Gigi's got it working on the bike. And he hasn't done it to make the boss happy. You know, Claudio Domenicali now runs Ducati. He's done it because there's a competitive advantage in it. It's just that he's tr- doing it to keep up with a Honda that doesn't have it and doesn't need it. He's doing it to keep up with the Yamaha that does actually need the start device but probably doesn't need the complexity of this one. His riders are always going to have more mental load on them. And if you sort of transfer ways of thinking, if you go to fighter jets and everything else, you win fights in fighter jets by having a pilot that's got very little to do other than fight. And Ducati are half making life complicated. Yeah, the mental capacity of these guys is, is just another world. Their brains work faster than others. It's That's why they're in GP. It's that simple. The most exciting finish that I saw last year in a GP race was at Silverstone. You know, the fourth closest finish in the Premier class since uh, the beginning of the championship. Alex Rins, it was his second victory of 2019 after winning at uh, Cota at Texas. He was only six points behind Maverick Vinales in the World Championship come the end of the season. So there were, there were four different manufacturers of bikes in the first four places of the Riders' Championship as we finished last year. Suzuki are continuing to go places, and Rins is, for me, the leader of the, of, of the team. I think that's pretty well a consensus between us three. But he's, he's, he's more than a two-race winner 
coming into 2020. Neil, you're bursting to say something. I'm watching the rate people improve at, and Mir's improving quicker than Rin's. But is Rin's ahead of Mir? Only just right now. I'd say by the end of the year, Mir is going to be flying that bit slightly higher altitude. Neil took the words out of my mouth. Um, I think Mir is the man to watch this year in Suzuki. There's something special about him. There's something a little bit more to him than Rins. I think it might be mental. Rins isn't the strongest guy in the grid mentally. And I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out, especially as his teammate starts to beat him in the box. Um, Suzuki have bet big on Rins being their next big thing and they've told him for quite a few years now that he is their next big thing and I think suddenly if the hotshot kid in the other side of the garage starts delivering better performances every weekend it might not sit uh, sit too well with Mr Rins to the extent that I'm quite curious how it might actually affect silly season because if we're four or five races into the year and Rins has been beaten in every one of them or in most of them by Mir and Ducati come knocking, I'm not sure what effect that'll have. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't follow the rider market quite that close, but Mir hurt himself in testing at Brno last year and it took him four or five races to even look like he was normal. I mean, he really, really bruised things that matter. It was a beyond enormous crash. He went off a cliff. Oh, the bike leapt the fence. Didn't it end up on the the road? Yes, which is down about 15 floors, you know. So, I mean, it's not a small crash. And the other thing from that that I think kind of went under the radar a little bit at the time, he bashed himself up quite badly, but he did a huge amount of damage to his lungs. He really badly bruised his lungs. And then we went to Southeast Asia where there's a huge amount of temperature, huge amount of humidity, and he was always going to struggle in the hot conditions at the end of the race. What they're doing now only now, after a whole year, is getting him in a perfect position on the bike. Stuff that other factories would have done immediately. They've let him find his way, and now they're tailoring the bike to him. I think we're going to see quite an increase, quite an improvement from him. The other thing that's going on at Suzuki is we know how important their test rider Sylvain Gantoli is to them. We know that the Suzuki mentality is a little bit different from the other factories where everything is tested to death before it gets to the race riders to the extent that the riders get apart and they're basically confirming it, not testing it. And a lot of that rests on Sylvain. And if you talk to Sylvan, he'll never quite admit it in the same words because you know what writers are like with their egos. But he believes that Mir is very, very similar to himself in terms of writing style, but better. I think also with Guntoli, you've got Tom O'Kane. Now, Tom O'Kane is one of the founding members of the Grand Prix generation. He was with um, Team Roberts back in the Wayne Rainey days. He was the genius data engineer that, that uh, helped Sinclair build that bike for Wait Rainey. He is now a full doctor. He's just completed his PhD at Dublin University, and he's running that test team. So this is not a small amount of experience. You've got a top rider, but blimey, you've got a top engineer as well. I went to a BSB Silverstone back in something like 2010 or 2011. Forgive me, I can't remember, but in my mind's eye, I can remember... Tom Jojic sitting on the back of a truck with some kid called Brad Binder and he was doing a couple of one two five races in the British Championship and Brad Binder's now a MotoGP rider. Um, I've got a lot of time for Brad Binder because he's got that Southern Hemisphere fight. He 
won a Grand Prix from the back of the grid at Harath on a Mudder 3 bike. And if you do that, in my book, I'm sorry to be broad brush and a bit sort of not even offhand, but I just think that is an exceptional ability that you've got, not only just to be a Grand Prix rider, but to win from the back of the grid. And here he is now coming into 2020. He is on a KTM, thanks to Johan Zarco, making a mess halfway through 2019. Is he going to be pushing pole? But it's, yeah, but it's not even a question of he's on a KTM. He's gone from Moto2 to the works team. He is the number two rider. Yeah, but I mean, Marquez he's, went straight to HRC. He's got a lot of good backup. He's got a lot of good people. KTM have really got their act together. It's, they had a couple of years of messing around, trying to do things the way they thought they should be done, rather than opening their eyes and looking at the rest of the bikes. They brought some new chassis to Valencia, that suddenly looked right. We talked earlier about the Honda where they're whittling away this beam to try and get the right amount of flex. That's what KTM have done. They have built a chassis that's got the the smallest beam you can imagine. It's like two tubes of steel welded together. Only I have never seen... I see the surface, which is one surface. It looks like oval section. I'll be staggered if the back is on that oval section. It would be a U-section. There's going to be nothing there. And that's what a modern GP bike needs. So they finally got a chassis. The, the first version arrived in Valencia. And at Sepang, Polispargaro had a Mark II version where they whittled away even more of the solid metal and put this, this U-shaped tube type thing in its place. They're getting there. The bike is good. Polispargaro... I mean, I worked with him for a year. He, he's a fighter. He's a brave boy. Boy, oh boy, he's a brave boy. He jumped on that bike, as you said, that chassis, as you say, at the end of last year, and instantly, within a couple of laps, he went quick. But Simon, you know, at Sepang, uh, their test rider was there, Danny Pedrosa, finally on full form, and was quicker than the regular riders. That doesn't happen very often, but for the spirit of the team and the belief of the engineers, they know now... This is where the bike is. It's here. There is an argument to be made that before he went to KTM, Paul Espargaro was a good MotoGP rider, but he wasn't a great MotoGP rider. And that KTM have never quite had a great rider on that bike until first Danny Pedrosa jumped on it as a test rider. And now if you speak to a few people in the paddock, they've put Brad Binder on it. Brad Binder is very highly rated within MotoGP in terms of just how good he can be he is obviously a rookie he is obviously not going to be beating Paul for the foreseeable future but once he gets into the swing of things once he learns his way he could be the guy that takes that bike to the next level because as you guys say it is getting there at a staggering rate of knots interesting to see how that one pans out yeah, I mean, I think just going to Brad Binder for one more bit, I was at that Silverstone meeting. I've got pictures of Brad. He was so light, he was covered in tyre weights. That's right. He had 10 kilos of lead on the bike and two kilos on his own back protector to get him up to the weight. It was just crazy. Anyway, watching the way riders come into MotoGP, you can come in as a top-level Moto2 rider with a championship under your belt. And that matters, you know, good riders have done that. But actually, there's an arguably there's a better second route. It's to come in from a second-rate Moto2 team where you have fought and you have fought and you have fought. The Repsol guys told me that they put Marquez on a suitor 
in Moto2 because it wasn't the best bike and they wanted him to fight. You watch what Quattraro was riding before he stepped onto the Yamaha and you look at what Brad had to put up with last year with the KTM Moto2 bike where I think they had six chassis in the course of a year. Yeah. They just could not make it work. And he fought and, and I think that desire to fight is what makes the difference when you hop on the big stuff don't let them have it too easy for too long just going to throw something else out there while we're on the subject uh, a little rumor that i've picked up while i've been in qatar apparently that test was so successful for danny pedroza that he started putting some feelers out into the 2021 rider market <laughs> so we have a return of pedroza and potentially a return of jorge lorenzo anywhere valentino goes everybody else can follow 40 years old racers here we come <laughs> come on we we've we've got to keep moving um let's go over the brenner pass from austria into italy and talk about aprilia alex Xbargaro, i can see his smile from here he was crying he was crying he's just so happy the thing is aprilia i mean they have had to fight so hard they're not given much money but much, much, much worse than that. The team of engineers that won them the 250 and 125 championships have all gone to work elsewhere. Everybody has recognized how good they were. You know, you've got Gigi Dallinia and at least three or four good guys went to Ducati. Um, Marco Bertolatti, their chassis designer for the last two or three years, is up at KTM. Funnily enough, the KTM is going a lot better now. You know what I mean? The, the, you look through the, the list of names that made Aprilia great, and they're all making other people great now. So Aprilia have got a massive battle on their hands. Now, what they have got is Romano Abalziano, and he, he wasn't a big name in racing until he came to the GP team. He does have a racing background. He was in John Kaczynski's Kajiva team. He was the guy that helped build the carbon chassis. He's very, very good. But for his first two years, he has had to try and manage the team as well as do the tech. Last year, Aprilia took pity on him, brought in a team manager, Massimo Rivola, from Formula One, and let Al Romano do what he does best, which is the technical side. And what we've got now is a bike that looks actually quite similar to last year's, but instead of the 72-degree V4 they had last year, it's now a 90-degree V4. I don't think the chassis is that much different. I don't actually think the engine internals are that much different. He's just swapped over the case, and it's gone to a 90 degree. But whatever they've done, it's made a massive difference. Paul Espargaro cannot believe it. The biggest issue that Aprilia are facing at the minute is the fact that they've got a bike now. That, you know, they're talking about the bike being a potential podium contender in the second half of the season once they've figured out the electronics and everything. But they've spent the entire winter testing program essentially with one rider while Andrea Davizzi or Andrea Iannone is sitting in Italy on a provisional drugs ban. I don't know how much of an impact that's had. Obviously Bradley Smith has been here, he's been testing like crazy and he will take over uh, should Iannone not be able to race but it's just been a spanner in the works that they really really didn't need at the worst possible time given how good that bike has turned out to be. I think uh, certainly Anoni on his day as we've seen is capable of running right at the very front a few years ago though Bradley Smith was as well and one of the things I don't think he ever really quite handled was the change from Bridgestone to Michelin's I am hoping that this new rear Michelin will give him back 100% of the confidence he used to have on the Tech 3 Yamaha and if he does get that opportunity 
I, th- I think Bradley has the capacity to surprise. And I think one thing that we haven't seen all the way through testing is Bradley Smith riding like a racer. He's been riding like a test rider. Correct. Absolutely. So then, the first two MotoGP races for uh, 2020 are not going to happen, Qatar and Thailand. We will have a championship in some shape or form. That's what Carmelo Espeleta of Dorna said to us a couple of days ago. We know it will happen, whether or not it's the full complement of races or 18 or 16 or whatever. But we will go racing. The big question is, I suppose in my book, will Marc Marquez recover fully from his winter shoulder operation? Will Honda be able to get their bikes to work? How faster can the Yamaha go after its good showing at the preseason tests to date? And can Vinales and Quattararo and Valentino Rossi take the Yamaha bull by the horns? Who knows who's going to win the championship? It's actually a great situation to be in. Once again, we're going to do a MotoGP championship and we're not entirely sure who's going to win it, even after Marc Marquez won by 150-odd points last year. Um, yeah, say what you want about the series and the way it's run. The technical rules are just on point at the minute and I can't wait to get going. Talking about technical, uh, Neil alongside me, he's been talking technical so far in this podcast, as he will do in other podcasts throughout the 2020 season here for us at the race. MotoGPTechnology.com, you can go and have a look at that website. That's where his book is. It's in its third edition, 320 pages, and it is absolutely up to date because it includes the technical innovations from the motor gp pit lane up to and including the last race in 2019 so here and now neil you're in date for another month because the opening race is a month further down the road yes yes absolutely you you can you can can get a book that's still got the latest stuff in it um, we have actually, like, unfortunately, had to talk about a few bits that aren't. I mean, I must admit, actually having this, the, uh, the chassis changed height en route wasn't in the plan, but there you go. Um, yes, the book's there, ready to go. Anyone who wants it, just have a look at MotoGPTechnology.com and we can get them out here. So, uh, so Neil has put a, a lot of effort into that over those three editions. In the meantime, uh, Simon Patterson, thank you for joining us. Keep in touch with Simon's reporting at the-race.com. Everything is there for free for you to be across everything with MotoGP, Formula One, IndyCar, Formula E, and even eSports. Uh, Neil, thank you very much for joining us. We'll catch up with you throughout the season. But from myself, Toby Moody... It's great to uh, not have Mark Marquez as the favourite from the sporting aspect. That's the way I leave this podcast here today. Let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that he makes a good recovery and he's back on full form. But let's see what the others can do and see if they can catch the reigning MotoGP world champion. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. (laughs) 